Welcome to New Life Downtown Sunday School, October 27th, 2013. Hey everybody. Good morning. How you guys doing? Are there any baseball fans in the house? No? Really? What's wrong with you people? Go cards? I'm a I'm an inveterate and passionate Red Sox fan, so I'm in deep mourning. If you didn't see what happened last night, you should Google it this afternoon because it was like an epic, historic baseball moment, and the Red Sox were on the losing end of. Um, so I'm deeply troubled in my soul, but I'm gonna try to push through it and be present. Um, okay, so this is our last week of doing digital media and spirituality, and um, uh, and um, at the end of the class today, Evan's going to come in and talk about what's coming for next month. Um, how many of you are here for the first time today? Really? Wow. Because the word has gotten out that it's so such an amazing class and you had to shut up. Okay, so um, I'll do a little bit of recap. So last week, we talked about, uh, we've been talking about digital media most, uh, the first week we talked about digital media and social media as a neutral thing. Um, that can be shaped by us, by the users, into good or bad or whatever else. And um, we've mostly, though, focused intentionally on the potentially pejorative or negative aspects um, of digital media as a source of incredible distraction um, and, um, and noise in our lives and the problem that creates for the spiritual life in a variety of ways. Last week, we talked about something called the default mode network. Um, so this is a group of coordinated places, and we've talked, again, just to recap a little bit, we've talked a little bit about neurology and the way the brain works on um, digital media and social media. Um, this is a, like a, a, a series of regions of your brain that are coordinated together. And the default mode network goes into work um, whenever you're not encountering other stimuli. Um, so no phone, no email, no talking to anyone, no music no screens of any kind, no books or even devotionals, just total silence when your mind is wandering, when you're doing nothing. And this default mode network does really important stuff um, for, you, for your brain and for you. It restores your memory, it improves your creativity, it helps you reach for ethical and moral behavior, and so on. Um, did anyone, after we talked about this, this last week, did anyone experience this this week sort of intentionally or not? Did anyone have a moment where you realized you were kind of working in that capacity? That's a sign that you need to sleep, probably. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And the point of this is that, again, that when you're, when you're doing nothing, your brain is actually maintaining about, it's using about 20% of your available energy in your body anyway, which is only slightly less than it would use if you were doing a calculus problem or reading philosophy or something. Um, so it's a very active thing that your brain's doing to, again, give you a stronger sense of identity, to improve your creativity and your memory, really essential things to what it means to be human. 
Um, I experienced this this week, and part of it was an intentional time for silence um, that I kind of devoted myself to and knew. I see a spiritual director, um, which is sort of like a counselor and a pastor or priest rolled into one. She's been encouraging me in the discipline of pauses um, and like transitional moments in my days. So that might mean sitting in my car for an extra 30 seconds or a minute before I start the engine or, um, or when I've arrived somewhere, just pausing for a, a long pregnant moment before I get out of the car. Um, just being present to God, to myself, catching up on some quiet before I go into this next part of my day. Um, or sitting in silence for a bit before I turn on my computer um, or before doing an important phone call for work. Um, and this is a discipline that I've had a hard time maintaining, this discipline of pausing. Um, because, but it's become, it's become an important one for me because it remind, I've learned that it kind of reminds me of my humble state, like as a human. Like last week, um, someone was talking about how relative silence had, during the week of Digital Sabbath had allowed her to, who was it? Who was talking about allowing yourself to face deep fears of abandonment? Is she here? I don't think she's here. Um, a woman who's been in our class was talking about how we, we, had a, we had a week this month where we kind of unplugged. And she was saying that week of unplugging, logging out of Facebook and that kind of thing, um, she found in those gaps, which would have been filled with digital media noise or social media normally, instead were kind of a space where she faced herself in some really profound ways. And it's extraordinary, on the one hand, that something as simple as logging out of Facebook for a week can help someone arrive it's such a profound and necessary insight about themselves. I have a fear of abandonment that I'm not confronting because I'm filling myself with noise. Um, but actually, it doesn't surprise me at all that she would do that because I've experienced the same thing with the silence of these kind of transitional moments. Um, because, you know, these, we Western Christians, we live lives of incredible privilege and power just by virtue of being American, being incredibly wealthy by global standards, by having access to all these amazing tools of software and hardware that represent like the height of historic human achievement. It's just, a, but it's just a normal part of our lives, right? But in these silent spaces, all my power and privilege, I find, really fall away. It's just me and my body and God, the God who I believe is there. And in that silence, I remember that the, the day, the thing I'm going to do next and the whole course of my day doesn't depend on me, actually. I feel self-important a lot as I'm rushing through my day and doing the stuff I have to do and that people are depending on me for. But, and I have a lot to manage in my work, but if I don't manage it, like the world goes on. And a moment of silence kind of helps me remember that. No one's life is at stake in what I'm doing. Silence kind of reminds me of my humble state. It's like kind of situating myself in Ecclesiastes for a moment and remembering it's all vanity, all this rushing around and all this activity. And what's really needed, the most necessary thing, is like the merry thing, keeping silence and quiet for a moment, remembering that the Lord is in his holy temple, um, and that he's the one who holds the power. Um, he's the necessary one for what needs to happen in the course of a day, and not me. And I've found great peace and comfort and healing in that remembering and pausing for these pregnant moments. Um, also, because of this conversation last week about the default mode network, I tried to uh, just let my mind wander a lot more this week. I was, in, I was traveling 
And I was in Washington, D.C. a lot of this week, and I had a lot of really fascinating and kind of exciting meetings and lots of work to do, urgent work to do, plus, you know, airports and taxi cabs and walks through downtown and all the things that go along with all that. It was a pretty noisy week for me, all things considered. But I felt better than I have in a long time um, through, through weeks like this um, because I let the gaps in my days really be gaps. I didn't check Twitter and Facebook when I was standing in the security line at the airport. I, did, I sat and rode in cabs and in planes or trains rather than feeling every little moment with reading and working and being connected. And it was kind of like drinking plenty of water throughout the day. I just felt better throughout my days living that way. Um, I felt I could think more clearly and work with more confidence and make good decisions, including good decisions about things digital. My Facebook and Twitter behavior, my email and internet work, and so on went really well so long as I was kind of keeping these disciplines. And I was engaged, I think, where I needed and wanted to be, but I wasn't compelled. I wasn't working out of bad habits. Um, but I was, I think, forming the outlines of good habits. So this, this default mode network thing is also pretty exciting to me just because I, I, I love this idea that there's necessary work that our brain needs to do, work that makes us more human, um, that it cannot do unless we're not doing anything. You know what I mean? It's, like, it's, a, it's an ironic kind of twist, necessary work that can only be done when we're not doing anything at all, and our brains need that. As a Christian who believes that God created people in his image, I always find it terrifically exciting when like these field, the fields of psychology and science discover something more about how we're built and how we best function because it often seems that those discoveries offer proof, they kind of confirm that the spiritual life and its ancient habits and disciplines um, had it right all along. You know, these ancient habits and disciplines of submitting to and depending on God um, are what we, when we're applying our highest insights um, into the body and into the mind, they just kind of, they confirm, they confirm these things. Our brains are, are built to be incredibly creative and productive. Our brains are also built to help us have a strong sense of identity and awareness of ourselves and of the world around us an ability to think and act ethically, to be holy. But our brain's capacity for doing that work requires us to be, really, to be still, just to, to let it happen. They depend, us on, they depend on us like giving ourselves to, to stillness and to quiet, to braving the boredom and the unknown and the disconnection of just being. Um, any, any further thoughts on this from your experiences as we've talked about this before we move on? Yeah. Yeah, the panic and anxiety that emerges when there's no other activity to kind of cover it up.
Yeah, yeah, that's great. Anyone else? Yeah, absolutely. I think this, um, this kind of conversation about digital media sets us up well for today, which, as, as you know, is, is going to be a time for us to think about the ways that people might flourish in the digital world. And one of those ways is definitely through a kind of intentional and regular unplugging, so that when we are plugged in, we're in a good frame of mind and spirit, and we sort of know what we're doing. We're on top of it um, instead of it being on top of us. But there are other ways um, for this human flourishing in digital spaces and with digital media to happen as well. And uh, we're going to hear about two of them this morning. I've asked Hillary Dickman Fox. Is that right? Foy. Foy Dickman? Okay. How about Hillary Dickman? Okay, let's call her Hillary Dickman. Her and Rachel um, Mueller, Mueller. Um, whose name is spelled Mueller, but pronounced Mueller, to both to come this morning and tell the story of the way that they've used blogging and social media to fruitful ends in their own lives. If you were here the first week, um, you'll recall that we did discuss, again, how these technologies are essentially neutral. And, um, and again, we've been focusing on downsides, but there are powerful upsides, too. And I told the story of how uh, finding a community of Christians online 12 or 13 years ago really changed my life. Um, and my daily and, inter and weekly interactions with those people on message boards and email uh, were frankly transformative and life-giving for me um, at a time when I really needed it. And I could tell another story about another, my current community. I have a group of friends, I'll just give you a piece of it, I have a group of friends who have been some of the closest and most powerful friendships of my adult life. And many of the guys in this, there's about seven of us, and all but a couple are in Colorado Springs. But we're spread out in the city, and a couple of us are um, spread out in the nation. All of us travel a lot for work, and so we don't see each other very often, even though we're relatively close by. But we email all the time. Um, we usually have two to four separate kind of email conversations going on at any given time. And sometimes these discussions are about politics or theology or sports. Um, but often they're deeply personal. And for some of these guys, this email group has become a space of newfound transparency in their lives. They've been able to unburden themselves of things that they would have never shared before, um, say things that are, don't normally get said. And this is not only true because it's online and faceless. We do get together every couple months and have long uh, evenings together, days and evenings together, and that's, you know, and in physical spaces as well, we sort of confirm or continue what we've been doing online. Um, and this email group and f this group of friendships has just been a space of honesty and grace and rich counsel. Honesty, grace toward that honesty, and counsel that emerges from our conversation over and over and over again for years now. Um, and I've sat and wept over 
these emails or knelt in thanksgiving or laughed in great joy in response to many of our discussions. I've never experienced anything quite like it. And it's only possible because of digital communication technologies. Um, were it not for computers and Wi-Fi and smartphones and the abil our ability to collapse geography and to collapse time because of technology, I wouldn't have these really rich friendships. And so we've been problematizing these things a lot this month. But again, these same technologies have been a source of great blessing in my life. And that's a relational good that I'm describing. But I could also speak about professional and creative goods that have been made possible because of things digital as well. Okay, but enough about me. Let's start with you, Hillary, if you'll come up. Sure. Um, we only have, they were telling me they want to capture the audio. So I'll hang out up here while you do this so we can kind of Q&A. But why don't we begin by you just kind of talking a bit about what you do and sure. with your blog and what it's meant for you. Sure. Um, I really started blogging as a way to stay connected with my family all over the country. Um, when I had kids, my kids were the first grandkids in the family. And um, my parents and my husband's parents wanted to stay in touch with us. And so I started blogging that way. Um, and at some point, I think my daughter was probably one and a half or two, a friend um, asked me if I would participate in this study where they were going to draw blood from me and draw blood from my daughter and test us for flame retardants in our bodies. And so um, I was like, yeah, I guess you can do that. It's kind of, it seemed strange to me. Um, <laughs> I, don't really, I don't really think you're gonna find anything weird. Well, it turned out that um, my daughter, as a toddler, had three times the level of flame retardants in her body that I had in mine. And so that kind of started me down this path of trying to figure out um, how to keep my family as clean and safe from environmental toxins as I could. Um, and so then I started blogging a little bit about that. And the more that I blogged about that, um, the more that I realized like I needed a platform that was separate from just what I was writing about my family. So at the same time as I was discovering these um, different toxins within my home and um, environmental toxins, I also started learning to build furniture and finding out that as I could build more furniture, I could keep toxins out of my home because I had control over what was, what was coming into my home. And so I started blogging not only about how to keep toxins out of my body and my family's bodies, but also about creative solutions in my home um, to kind of keep it a really clean place. And so um, through other blogs and um, Google and YouTube and all of these digital um, media, I learned how to build furniture and I learned how to remodel my home and I learned how to like do all of these kind of DIY things that I never really thought would be part of my life. And, um, and so I created a separate blog um, called The Friendly Home, and so I sort of left my blogging about my kids separate and started writing about the furniture that I was building and the different projects that I was doing around my house. And um, I don't, I get somewhere around like 35, 40,000 um, unique visitors a month, um, which is not a huge blog, but it's big enough to have a lot of interaction with a lot of different people. Um, so it's been overall a really positive experience for me. 
Okay, so what, part of what's interesting to me about your story is that it involves, I mean, you started blogging just to keep in touch. Right. Like, just to be do it socially within mm -hmm. your family, which is a really familiar thing you know, yeah. that a lot of people do. But if it wasn't for the internet, first of all, you wouldn't have been able to learn as much as you learned about Absolutely. the toxin stuff, yeah. right? Um, so let's, before we get to the furniture thing, um, was there a community that, like, responded to that? Like, did people, did you, did, did you, um, is there any particular uh, either person or group of people that you connected with when you were just blogging on that topic? Yeah, for sure. And I think that one of the really interesting things was this was something that I wouldn't probably have brought up in conversation when I was having coffee with my friends, you know, because it's kind of an, I mean, it's, I don't know, it's a little bit of an awkward thing to talk about. Like, hey, you know that sofa that you're sitting on is probably going to give your kid cancer. <laughs> you don't, you don't want to say that. Um, <laughs> and so, um, so that I was able to write about those things and write about them from my perspective um, brought up not only people who kind of found me on the internet through random Google searches, but also my own friends, like the friends that I knew face-to-face -face and my community in my neighborhood um, would start asking me questions and that they could read what I was experiencing, what I was learning, and then initiate it in person with me. Really, yeah. I mean, it deepened those relationships, but it wasn't something that would have been comfortable for me to initiate with them, I think. How did people find out about it? About what? The fact that you were blogging about Oh, um, I would occasionally, like, if I wrote a post that I felt like was relevant to um, my friends, I would I would post the URL on Facebook or, and then one of my friends would say, did you read Hillary's post about whatever? And then um, it would kind of come up that way. And then they have, I mean, most of my friends now, you know, follow me and get my post by email or whatever. So they're up to date on what I'm talking about online that I wouldn't bring up with them face-to-face yeah. -face necessarily. What about like connections to people who you've never met, will never meet, who are in Tokyo or whatever? Yeah. Like, what's the most far-flung kind of meaningful connection that emerged from that? Um, I think, you know, there are several people who have found me a lot of times via via Pinterest, like they'll see a project that I've, that has gotten posted to Pinterest, um, like staining a table using a vinegar and steel wool mixture, right? Pinterest so Pinterest is an electronic pin board where you can post, you can post pictures of things that inspire you or that you want to try or, um, and, and it's easy to follow back the URL to the original source. So I have a couple of projects that are, um, very popular on Pinterest and where a lot of the hits on my blog come from and there are things that tend to be sort of friendly like earth friendly or people friendly not toxic things um, and so yeah a couple of relationships have started out of like this one post that I did about um, using steel wool and vinegar to stain wood and um, and people who have then followed me on Facebook and who continue to ask me questions and share their projects with me it's really fun when you inspire somebody to try something different or um, creative, and they come back and they start emailing you pictures of the projects that they've worked on and say, hey, look what I did, and you know that it's because you've inspired them. Mm -hmm. So that's probably been, like for me, that's been a really encouraging mm -hmm. part of it. Okay, so the connections to other people is interesting, <laughs> both different kinds of connections with friends mm -hmm. and connections with strangers. The other thing that's really important that I wanna highlight about Hillary's story is this, um, 
this um, capacity that emerged because of digital media for you to discover um, an ability to create mm -hmm. that you didn't maybe know you Absolutely. had? I mean, you didn't yeah. know anything about creating. So she's just created this like um, playhouse in her backyard yeah. with solar panels for the girls to have their own reading lights and like amazing stuff, all recycled or used. As much as I could, recycled. Like I'm sort of at a stand still right now because I'm waiting for more fence wood. So if any of you are replacing your fences anytime soon, I'm looking for six foot old cedar fence boards for siding. And so now you're kind of like an, I mean, I hardly even understand what you just said, but like <laughs> been maybe five years ago, you wouldn't have understood right. that either, Absolutely. right? But now you're yeah. like an expert in an area of knowledge that yeah. you've acquired through the internet. And, and I, I mean, so just to underline this, like, I don't know if I mentioned this the first week or not, but like, a, so St. Augustine or Augustine is like a model for the spiritual life. Um, fourth century African bishop. You guys have heard of Augustine, right? And so he writes this book called The Confessions, which um, in two ways is a model, has been used as a model for what it looks like to achieve human flourishing, to understand uh, the unique ways in which you've been created in the image of God. And one is just that he says that, you know, our heart, he just talks, he diagnoses this problem of restless hearts. Our hearts are restless. They just wander constantly. You all know what this feels like because you're human. Our hearts are restless until they find their rest in you. Um, it's like one of his opening prayers. And then the rest of the book, this long sort of memoir, kind of the first memoir, is him trying to find that rest by knowing himself very, very deeply. And when you know yourself deeply, like you can be surprised by what might be possible. Like the horizon of the possible um, within you and your life um, can only really be known um, you know, by kind of becoming more what you were created to be. And um, that's the kind of thing that I see happening. Like you, there was this thing in Hillary that you didn't know was there that you began to discover. Um, I guess I'd like to know a little bit more about that. Like wh what, I mean, you, you knew there were toxins in furniture. Mm -hmm. So my response to that would be to go like save up and go buy new furniture. So like what, what, how, did the DI, how does the DIY yeah. thing and it's online right. um, iteration like work its way into the story and mm -hmm. what made you think I can just, I can just do this? Okay. Um, so when I save my money for something, it's not for like a thing, it's to travel because we love to travel with our kids. And, um, and so then I have to figure out a way when I'm, if I'm replacing furniture, I have to figure out a way to get what I want and I'm kind of picky and I want it to fit my space right, and um, it has to be affordable. And so that's how I started DIYing. I, I wanted, Scott and I decided that we wanted, um, actually he decided and then I had to do it because he has a real job. So he decided that we should build a loft for our oldest daughter, Bryn. But it wasn't a loft for her to sleep in, it was gonna be a loft for her to read in. So she would have this reading loft and then below she'd have a desk because we already had a bed, we didn't need a bed. And so I was like, great, that's so nice of you to offer that to her. Now what are we going to do? And so I found some plans online for a loft, and we had a miter saw and um, a drill and a pneumatic nailer. And I was like, well, here, here are designs for a loft. I'm pretty good with graph paper, so I will figure out how to shrink it and make it work in her room. Um, and so I figured out the plans, and I thought before I build – this I should probably build something a little bit easier just to make sure that I like can actually do something that'll support her body weight. So I found plans. I needed I needed a place for the kids to 
stash their backpacks when they got home from school. So I found plans for a locker system to go near our front door. And I was like, well, this is kind of an easier place to start. So I built that and then I built um, some bookcases and felt like I was ready to to go and do something that would be um, that would work for Bryn in her bedroom. Yeah, and so I found it all online, and um, and you know, I don't know. Like if you can read the instructions to put together IKEA furniture, you can build your own. So (laughs) I figured if you know if if uh, if other people who are relatively bright can do this, then I can probably figure it out. And, and so I did, and I just, the more things that I worked on, the more confidence I had, and the more I, at, you know, at some point after building a few things that were designed by other people, I realized I don't really need other people to design this. Now I understand the concept. You build a box, and then you put shelves in it, and that's pretty much, and then you put fancy trim on it, that's furniture. Um, and so and so from there, like people started asking me to build stuff for them, and I could figure out how to fit something into their specific space and make it look the way that they wanted it to look. And I could play with different finishes, and I could play with colors, and um, and I could make it this beautiful thing that didn't used to exist. And um, so for the creative side of me, it was really um, it fed me. You know, it was something that was really satisfying for me. Yeah, that that's the piece of it that I'm kind of the most interested in that it was really satisfying for you because that to me is a signal like deep satisfaction like in the soul is a signal I think of coming into alignment you know with the Imago Dei not to put too fine a point on it but we're we're all in the same believing bag here and so I can say those kinds of things um, without sounding too foolish but I think that's really a beautiful thing like that kind of alignment that's made possible so um, any questions for Hillary before she sits down any questions about her story yeah, I just got my own URL last week. I've been really dragging my feet on it. Um, it's it's called The Friendly Home. The URL is friendly-home.net because all other yeah. normal iterations of The Friendly Home were taken by um, a nursing home in Pennsylvania. <laughs> <laughs> so that's what I ended up with. <laughs> it's a great blog. You should check it out. It's terrific. Okay, thank all you, right. Hillary. Thanks Appreciate it. Okay, Rachel, come on up here. Okay, so same drill. Why don't you just tell your story of, um, of, uh, of starting a blog and why you did and what it's about, and then we'll ask your questions about it. Okay. Um, hi, I'm Rachel. So I um, started blogging like probably seven or eight years ago, uh, maybe longer. I started with a Zanga blog. Does anyone remember those? Okay, yeah, I totally had one. I found it the other day and I was like, I need to erase this immediately so this can never be brought up against me. Um, it was a lot of like those dumb surveys that you do in college, you know, really simple things. Um, but slowly it evolved kind of into like telling my own story and telling a little bit about what I was struggling with, what I was going through. And I just found um, like the satisfaction, like Patton talked about earlier, of like this just really, it brought out something in me that I didn't know existed. Um, And so after college, I went through a series of three job layoffs in a year, and it was a pretty intense time for me. I was 22, I think, or 23, and, you know, had been told I could do anything and could have the world and did everything right, and then all of a sudden my life was shattered. 
Um, and so my mom flew out to Colorado, or to Tennessee where I was living, and drove me the 20 hours back to Colorado. And I'm pretty sure I cried most of the 20 hours because I was so devastated. Um, but because of that, I started this blog of what it would look like for me to move back to Colorado, to live back with my parents, back to this place where I really hated my life and hated everything about it. And I was like, I'll be here for nine months. I'm pretty sure actually the first blog post said, I will be here for nine months and then I'm moving on. And it's been four years, five years, and I am still here. So obviously that wasn't in the cards, um, thankfully. But I just found this kind of life in it. And I thought, you know what, like, I'm a disaster. And there's nobody else that's willing to admit that they're a disaster. And I feel really alone in this journey. Um, and so if I can help someone else not feel so alone, then that's worth it. And like, even if no one else reads it, for me, I need to process in this way. And so I started writing about more about my journey. And because I'm not married, that journey also included boys, um, <laughs> which then led me to write this 10-part uh, blog post on how I kissed dating goodbye, broke my heart, and killed our generation. So maybe that was a little bit of a dramatic title, but <laughs> at the time, it was all I had. And it actually hasn't changed in like two and a half years. Um, but that blog, that series, oddly enough, started going viral with a bunch of friends. So like I'd share it on Facebook and friends of friends of friends and colleges would share it. And I was like seeing these numbers blow up and it was really crazy. And people would like email me and say, oh my gosh, this is the conversation I've been wanting to have that I've been thinking about that no one has said. And like you just said what I've been thinking. And actually Joshua Harris, who wrote I Kiss Dating Goodbye, <laughs> tweeted at me about it. <laughs> and he was like, you're a really good writer for being brokenhearted and killed. I was like, did you know that? I don't know if you knew that. So I was like, ah, I think that's a backhanded compliment, but I'm not really sure about this. Um, and so I just started writing more and more and more about um, relationships. And then I started doing this series. It was a confession series where I confessed everything um, from hating ham and drinking black coffee to never being kissed. Um, so I kind of hit the gamut of things that for me were private, but it was to get into a habit of writing every single day because I wasn't writing every day and I would kind of only write on a whim, but I wanted to be, I was doing it by name. So people knew it was me and I was sharing it on Facebook, sharing it on Twitter, kind of sharing it everywhere. And so it was very much about who I was as a person. Um, and so I kind of got going and then oddly enough, people started reading it still and they kept journeying with me. And I started sharing more of um, this journey the Lord was taking me on of like my identity in Christ and who I was because I kind of realized when I moved home that I had no idea who I really was. I didn't know who God was. I didn't know what my relationship should look like. I didn't know any of these things. And God took me on a really powerful journey of that. And so I started blogging through that and I was really vulnerable and really honest about it because again, no one else was saying these things. And I just thought, we're all struggling with this. So why isn't someone talking about it? Because we're all disasters. So like someone else be a disaster with me so I don't feel so alone. Um, so yeah, right now mostly I don't have anything like super fancy. I don't build furniture. I can't even figure out which screwdriver is which at the end of the day. Like I'm, an, I'm not very good with that stuff. Um, but I write a lot about kind of like my mishaps in dating. Um, some sarcastic posts about dating, which I just wrote recently, which got a little flack. Matt Benson, right there. Um, and I also write a lot about just kind of like how God is continuing to shape my heart and help me figure out who I am and 
kind of my my thing is that I really believe in the power of like me too and how if as community we're able to tell each other like oh my gosh you you like that too or you're going through that too like me too there's so much power in the invitation of like me too this is my story too and so really I write my story so that other people can tell their story okay so this um I love this story because for, for a couple reasons. One, though, is that one of the reflexive criticisms that we often give to social media and digital media is that it's solipsistic, that it's all just navel-gazing. There's a lot of navel-gazing, just talking about the self. And sorry, this is, I mean, this is what you do. But focusing, <laughs> focusing on the self, it's all about me. And, and that you hear that a lot. But I think that criticism is, is too reflexive and too over-applied and over-determined because it also can be a space of incredible flourishing, transparency, um, and self-giving in a way that other people can identify with and, you know, and recognize I'm not alone in this. I mean, Augustine was like the first blogger, right? I mean, that, the Confessions is a lot of, I mean, he goes... You know, he obsesses about the fact that he stole a peach and how awful he was for stealing a peach. And it's like, it's too much. And he, he, he like makes a lot out of little things often, sometimes in that book. Um, but he's trying to get to the heart of who he is. And that's part of what we do as humans, right? Um, and when you see people online, there's a lot of I, a lot of using I, a lot of me, myself, and mine storytelling. But um, often, again, that can be incredibly um, poignant and powerful and transformative um, for people. Okay, so I know that a few weeks ago you blogged about something in particular um, where you found some Me Too's out there. So I'd love for you to talk about that. Yeah, so um, like I said, I, I talk a lot about the journey the Lord has brought me on, um, especially within just my heart and my identity. And, you know, as a woman, that obviously includes a lot of like beauty issues and the de desire to be pursued and to be in a relationship and be married someday. Um, but one of the things I didn't really talk about very explicitly was um, kind of my struggle with my outer beauty and some of those issues that have come up throughout my childhood. And in the spring, I found out that I had kind of a health issue um, with an insulin, an insulin resistance. And so that had kind of ended up shaping a lot of my story and where I was today. And um, so I had never actually blogged about any like, like weight issues that I'd had growing up. I blogged about being teased, I blogged about being made fun of, all of these things where you could kind of infer if you knew me and you knew my story at all that that's probably what I was talking about, but I never explicitly talked about it because I had a lot of shame around it. And I didn't, I wanted to keep this perception of this like idea, an ideal person that I was. Um, and so I had gotten to a point where, um, I think I'd, it'd been like five months since I had found out and I'd lost close to 50 pounds in those five months. And it was really starting to be noticeable to people, and they didn't. Can you give some details about what did you find out exactly, and how did it change? Like, what, did, what were you doing that would, that would produce these differences? Like, what, my medical stuff? Yeah. I think that's confidential. I'm just kidding. <laughs> <laughs> Go read the blog. <laughs> Um, so basically I found out my body overproduces insulin and I have to take a bunch of medicine and I have to come like eat different. And so I eat a ton of protein and really low carb. Um, and so I started doing this in May of this year and still do it. And so it, yeah, it was just kind of this crazy process, but people noticed it because they'd noticed me eating differently. They'd noticed that I'd be kind of weird around food and I didn't really want to talk about it. Um, because it's been such a source of shame and like a huge wounding in my life. And so I wasn't ready to kind of acknowledge it and talk about it. 
Um, but it also was this like crazy process of God healing me and like changing me and, you know, bringing up all these new issues that I had to deal with. And so it was just really, really hard to kind of even verbalize it. And, um, yeah, so I found all this stuff out uh, kind of about my health and what was happening and I just didn't want to talk about it with people, but obviously like something was happening to me and people were starting to notice. Uh, and I had struggled with an eating disorder and some image disorders throughout high school and college and had been very honest about that. And so I think people in my life were kind of concerned that I was back on this like really unhealthy train when in reality kind of I was figuring out how my body should work and what is healthy and how I'm created. Um, and it was a really scary process for me, but I hadn't, like I said, I hadn't acknowledged it on my blog because I wasn't sure what would happen. I didn't know if it would work. I just wasn't ready to talk about it. I had told a few uh, kind of my really close community or people that I interacted with on a daily basis and obviously like my family. Um, but I really kind of kept it pretty private because again, I didn't, I wasn't ready to talk about it. It was one of those things for me that has been a little bit off limits on blogging. I have a few kind of rules for myself of things I will and I won't talk about. Um, and this was kind of one of them, probably more so out of pride and shame versus like a healthy need to like keep something private. Um, and so I decided that this was part of my story and I really needed to tell it. And it was more so for everybody else than for me because when I started Googling this insulin resistance and I started looking online for resources about it, there was nothing. And I couldn't find any stories of women that had gone through it. I had a dear friend um, who had kind of walked through it and kind of pioneered it for me. And so she was kind of my go-to where I'd like text her and be like, is this normal? Because I don't think this is normal, but it's happening. And she's like, no, it's not normal. So you should call the doctor, which I did. Anyways, um, and so all of this stuff kept happening and I thought, you know what, like, again, this is for everybody else. Like, this is my story for other people. And um, I wrote this blog post and I literally wept as I was writing it. And I, it's very rare that I'll cry over something I write because I know what I'm writing is everyone else's story too, but this was very much my story and the things that I struggled with. And so I wrote this blog post and I scheduled it to go and I was like sweating the whole night before um, and it posted and I got responses from all over the world of people saying, me too. Like, I think this might be me. I think I might struggle with this. I had family members that contacted me. I had a girl in Singapore email me. I had people all over the world that were saying, like, thank you for telling the story because I think that, I think this is me and I think maybe I've had hope for the first time. Friday night, I had an email from a random acquaintance that I met three years ago that said, I just read your blog post. Can I, who's your doctor? Can I go see them? She's like, I've struggled with this my entire life. And it was that moment where I thought, this is why I write. Like, this is why I post. This is why I'm willing to be honest and vulnerable because there's someone out there that, you know, their whole life could be changed if they just knew. And how dare I keep this private when I've been given the gift of knowing when someone else could have that same gift. And so that was, I wrote this post and it was really awkward and like actually Patton brought up and he was like, I've been wanting to ask you about this crazy weight loss, but I didn't know how to do it. And so you invited me into the story. And so thank you for that. And it just, it was really validating in that, okay, it's all right for me to be honest and vulnerable and no one's going to think less of me and no one's going to shame me for these issues. And so, yeah. Okay. Thank you. Yeah. That was awesome. Um, so two things, and then Evan's got to come up and, and, and promo next month, but just to sum up, I love the, um, these kind of twin tales, new possibilities um, for work and creativity, for realization of vocation, emerging 
because of digital media. And then this phrase Rachel just used, my story for other people. That's a really beautiful in your phrase. You're a good writer. Um, it's a great, great phrase. My story for other people. I love that a lot. Yeah. What's the name of Rachel's blog? Uh, it's Rachel Mueller, M-U-E-L-L-E-R dot net. Moeller, actually. Rachel Mueller dot net. Spelled Mueller. Mueller.